Testing, testing. Let's turn you up a little bit. This is like, this is like, this is like gold. No physician wants to be known as the person that signs out bombed. Do you ever wonder how a doctor thinks? Cardiologists think different than rheumatologists who think different than family practice doctors. They think different than gynecologists. They all think different because they have different problems that they encounter. One of the things that makes emergency medicine special is that we need to be able to think and interact with people in all of these different disciplines. So in this new podcast, our goal is to teach you how physicians think, to really focus on how emergency physicians think. We are going to be following a complicated patient on their course through the emergency department. And we're going to discuss the elements that go into our decision-making process and talk to experts from many fields so that we can come to an understanding of how we evaluate a patient from the moment that a patient walks through the doors of the emergency department and says, doctor, I'm really not feeling good. Can you help me out? And we're going to follow the steps that are taken until we come to a diagnosis that's going to allow us to get them the appropriate care. Welcome to Undifferentiated. All right, now that that fancy intro is out of the way, my name's Spencer Tomberg. I'm one of the fourth-year emergency medicine residents at Denver Health Medical Center, and sitting virtually next to me is Dr. Michael Overbeck. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And Dr. Overbeck is going to give us a little bit of history on the patient who's coming into the emergency department. So the story on this gentleman is he's a mid-60s guy with previous back surgeries and a recent hernia surgery for an incarcerated left inguinal hernia. And he comes in with an hour of pain in his left lower quadrant and left flank. So when we see him, his vital signs, blood pressure 116 over 76, heart rate's 115, maybe a low-grade temp at 99.3, Respiratory rate 28, SATs are 96%. In general, he's uncomfortable appearing, maybe older than his stated age, but he's not in any acute distress, and his heart and lungs seem to be unrevealing, and his belly pain seems to localize in that left lower quadrant with some spread into his left flank. He's got a well-healed or appropriately healing left lower quadrant skin incision from his previous inguinal hernia repair. And his neurologic and vascular exam of his lower extremities are really reassuring. His back exam shows multiple old overlying scars from previous back surgeries, but he's got no midline tenderness and no true CVA tenderness that we can elicit and no skin changes to suggest a zoster or or a dermatologic process. We have a gentleman in his 60s that comes into the emergency department and he is having pain in his back and into his abdomen. So... What's the first thing that we need to think about that we need to make sure we address? Okay, so we need to worry about vital signs. If he's hypertensive, hypotensive, febrile, tachypnic, tachycardic. But on my differential, clearly in these people in their seventh decade of life is going to be vascular catastrophes. We want to make sure we don't miss a AAA or miss a aortic dissection. Let's go back to the vital signs for a second. If we see somebody that's hypertensive versus hypotensive, How is that helping us make a shift in what's moving up and down our differential? You know, the hypertensive patient makes me think more that the patient is in pain or potentially that they have, God forbid, an 
aortic dissection. But the hypotensive patient with back pain, as we've heard the, the description of this patient, I would be very worried about abdominal aortic aneurysm that has ruptured. So we need to get that person evaluated ultra fast. And when you say ultra fast, is there anything else that's ultra that we can use to help evaluate this patient? Well, we're fortunate to have somebody much more expert than either you or I with us to talk to us about how do we use ultrasound in this patient to quickly clarify the clinical presentation. We're lucky to have in our program the director of our emergency medicine ultrasound program, the director of our ultrasound fellowship, and actually the author of the book on emergency medicine ultrasound, Dr. John Kendall. So we're going to spend some time talking to him about how we can use ultrasound in the early evaluation of this elderly gentleman who's coming into our department with back pain. Great. Uh, That's a great question Um, and a great utility for ultrasound. You know, in my mind, that patient is undifferentiated in a lot of respects. And one of the easiest ways to evaluate whether this is something that's life-threatening, potentially catastrophic, which would be, say, a AAA, um, or even potentially an aortic dissection, versus something that can be a little bit more mundane, maybe not quite as serious like a kidney stone. And, and ultrasound can see those things both very well and, uh, and help us in differentiating which one of those things on the end of the spectrum he might have. So we have our ultrasound in hand. We've got the patient in the supine position, but you need to really go where the money is. You need to get a good view of the aorta in a place that's going to reliably show you the pathology you're trying to exclude. And I think this is a tricky one. I think that finding the aorta in the right place can be really hard. And I know that sometimes like my go-to is to look through the liver first, but I don't even know if that top part of the aorta is someplace that we need to worry about finding any pathology in. Well, the, the demographics of AAA is you know, 90% or more of them are going to be below the renal arteries. And so we at least want to start out with a view high enough that's right about where the renal arteries take off. And seeing the renal arteries just in general is going to be challenging. But we know that the superior mesenteric artery comes off in an area that's almost identical to where the renal arteries come off, or at least where we can see the SMA is right near where the renal arteries are. So that's usually where I start my scanning, is I find the SMA. That's going to be the first view that I get. And then the next view is going to be Somewhere around the middle of that, uh, between the SMA and the bifurcation. So you can do it a couple of different ways. You can scan all the way down, get to the bifurcation, and then take an, an image right above the bifurcation, and then come back up again, get another transverse view, and then get a longitudinal view. The longitudinal view is mainly communicating to yourself, but also to other people who may be looking at your images, that you've seen the majority of the aorta uh, because you're able to see a a wider kind of superior to inferior aspect of it. So Dr. Kendall, I think, paints a great picture of how we take the, the views down and actually go all the way down to the bifurcation where the aorta splits into the iliacs. Now, I think that gives me good data to put in, but I love the longitudinal view. And I love the longitudinal view because I can see the almost the whole aorta and it paints a picture in my mind of a nice straight tube where there's no focal bulging. And if I see that, I feel better that we're not missing that because we missed a spot as we cut little sections through it. One of the big barriers to getting great views in most of our patients who are at the highest risk is their habitus. And when that BMI approaches 35, let's face it, a lot of us just don't even get the windows that we need to exclude the diagnosis we're trying to exclude. But I think 
John's really helpful in his approach and the way he describes persistence and patience and getting the images you need and actually has a few really good tips. So there's a couple of things. Um, First of all, a lot of the patients we're going to be scanning are going to be a little bit bigger. So the distance from the transducer to the aorta is going to be pretty large. You know, it may be 15, 20, maybe even 25 centimeters if you just place the transducer on the skin surface. So one of the things you can do is decrease that distance by pushing down on the patient. And many people are surprised at how much pressure they can exert on a patient without having or causing any discomfort at all. And so maybe I can decrease that distance from 20 centimeters to 15 if I just press in five, or maybe I can even take it in 10 more centimeters in a big patient. And now I've decreased my distance from the transducer to the aorta down to 10 centimeters. But the secondary benefit of that is it pushes the bowel out of the way. And that generally is the thing people will talk about is when they try to scan the aorta, the bowel gas gets in the way, the bowel is in the way, and so I can't see anything. Well, if you put a lot of pressure on, you're going to displace the bowel out of the area that you're trying to see. But the other thing I find with folks is they're not really patient enough when they're looking at the aorta. It isn't one of those studies where you put it in a space, if you don't see anything, then you just move on. And the reason being, or the rationale, is that the peristalsis will gradually move that bowel gas out of the way. And I think of it as as the couple of Ps. So there's the pressure, but then there's also persistence. That if I push down hard, and then I just stay in one place, that the bowel gas will usually be moved out of the way. The third thing I like to think about is that if I truly have a patient with a AAA, almost all of our AAAs are going to expand anteriorly. In other words, they're going to expand closer to the transducer and they become easier to see. So most of the times when we have difficulty seeing the aorta, it's because it's a normal caliber aorta. The AAA hasn't displaced the bowel gas out of the way or it hasn't moved itself closer to the transducer. So there's a certain amount of comfort I have at least in in seeing patients where I can hardly see anything knowing that they likely don't have a AAA. So what Dr. Kendall is saying is you basically use the salt and pepper method of ultrasounding. You just got to push it. You got to push it and you got to push it real good. All right. So now that we're off the salt and pepper joke, which is funny, but dates us, you can think of this as two different patients. The first is a patient who's a ticking time bomb. The other one, the bomb has already gone off. If you see intraperitoneal rupture, then you know what they've got. You know they've got a ruptured AAA. And you also know that they need to go directly to the operating room. At that point, they don't need additional imaging. They don't need to go to the CAT scanner. We don't need to resuscitate them. They just have to go to the operating room. And studies that have looked at that will have determined that the folks who get an ultrasound go straight to the operating room versus the others. There's a significant delay if you try to do additional imaging, but your mortality also increases fairly dramatically. In the heat of the battle, you're going to be tempted to get more information to please your consultant. But in this situation, this patient simply cannot wait. This is one of those times where you get everything going and you get your momentum going towards the operating room and you do not let anybody get you off track. It's a little bit like a patient with a STEMI. They're not here to see me. They're not here to see registration. They're not here to get a chest x-ray. They're here to see the surgeon. They need to go to the operating room now. The mortality of a ruptured AAA is 50%, even if you land in the operating room and rupture your AAA right on the operating room table. So it's an extremely lethal condition, and nothing should get in your way of getting that patient to the operating room. 
So when we finally get that really good view of the aorta, and it is a circle, but it is a large circle, say it's five centimeters. That patient who's hypotensive with a five centimeter aneurysm, well, remember that the back wall of the aorta abuts the retroperitoneal space. And that means as much as a third of those bleeds can be in the retroperitoneum. Now, the problem becomes that not all AAAs rupture interperitoneally that a good percentage of them are going to have retroperitoneal rupture. Those are hard to see. And and, and it's not something that, that I even usually even look for. I don't encourage people to look at because it, it isn't something that you can say, if I don't see blood, that I don't that they're not ruptured and therefore they're safe to go to the CT, especially if they're unstable. Um, so if they're unstable, you have a AAA, you assume they're ruptured, even if you can't see the fluid. But if you do see the fluid, then it is very helpful. And again, those patients should go to the OR as well. This is something that we can't mess up. The stakes are too high with this evaluation. So there's some things that we just need to get right. And we asked John what he thought the main things are to watch out for. I think that the thing that, that I find folks missing is they start too low. They'll start at an area where they can see the aorta, which usually is definitely below the renal arteries. Sometimes it's right at the bifurcation and they don't get that, that view up, up higher. I think the other thing that we do wrong is we just don't press hard enough. You know, if we press hard enough, usually you're going to be able to see the aorta. And the third thing I see folks do a lot is if they can't see things very well, they start turning up the game. They have this sense that if I can't see it, therefore I need to add more brightness to the image. When in fact, all that does is just create this artifact that doesn't allow you to differentiate between what is bowel versus what is a vascular structure, what is the aorta. And so the, it's, it's counterintuitive, but you actually want to decrease your gain when you're scanning in the, in the abdomen. Once we get that great view of the aorta and we establish that it's normal caliber, we still are not done. AAA is obviously on our differential, and we've already kind of taken that off the table. But dissection is something that we definitely need to think about. So we're going to look into a little bit of what we have to do to evaluate for dissection. Aortic dissection is, is a tough one because it's mainly going to be a diagnosis of inclusion. In other words, if I don't see a dissection, I'm not going to say they don't have it. But there are a number of different vantage points or viewpoints that we can uh, utilize in order to see the aorta. So one of them would be up by the heart where we can see the outflow track of the aorta and, and look for a type 1 dissection or Debakey A. Uh, we can also look posteriorly where the heart, uh, the aorta comes behind the heart and see if we see a, a flap uh, in that uh, descending view. Uh, but then we can also pick it up in the abdomen and, and find out what the aorta looks like below the diaphragm. And so I generally think of it in three different places, the arch, posteriorly, and the kind of the retrocardiac area, uh, and then in the infradiaphragmatic area. And this is very not visual medium, but in terms of when you're looking for a dissection, you're seeing those flaps, what do they actually look like? And what are you trying to differentiate between normal tissue and abnormal tissue there? So they can be difficult, uh, to say the least. Um, and part of it is that the dissection doesn't just follow a strict horizontal pattern, that a lot of times it'll be almost like it rotates or it's, um, it's spiral in the aorta. So I may see it as a thin slice of tissue in the middle of the aorta at one point. And then if I go a couple of centimeters down from that, I may not see it at all just because it's not perpendicular to the transducer anymore. 
And so it can be very difficult to see, but generally speaking, it's going to be a, a piece of tissue, uh, an echogenic line that goes um, in the, the lumen of the aorta. So back to our case, we got great views of the aorta. It was normal caliber. There was no recognized dissection flap. Blood pressure was reasonably well-controlled. Pain was reasonably well-controlled. And there were good pulses in the distal extremities. But remember, even if he's got a dissection, 20% of people will still have pulses distal to their dissection. So just to paint a picture of where we're at, we have a patient who comes in and a couple of the conditions on their differential are things that can kill them quickly. We do some quick tests, these ones involving our ultrasound. Their physical exam also reassures us. So after this testing, our post-test probability of them having a AAA or a dissection is low enough that we can go back to our differential and start exploring the other parts of it. So we're going to come back to our patient now, and we're at the point where we've taken a lot of bad things off the table, but he has a history of kidney stones in the past. So the first question we're going to ask is, what do we need to do imaging-wise to evaluate if this is a kidney stone that's causing him this pain again? Well, we're going to start by talking to one of our professors in urology about how he would go about evaluating somebody who comes in with a story that's concerning for having a kidney stone. And from Denver Health Medical Center, we have Dr. Wilson Molina. I'm Wilson Molina. I am an associate professor of uh, surgery at Division of Urology at the University of Colorado and uh, chief of endourology at uh, Denver Health. Thank you for having me. The patient has a history of kidney stones, and they uh, come in with pain that's similar to their previous stones. Do we need to get imaging on those people? You know, it, the, the easiest way, you know, and I know that some, sometimes people in the emergency department are really overwhelmed, et cetera, and then the easy way to do is flank pain is to get a CT scan. So, but if you look uh, and if you take your time and talk to the patient, they can give you some clues about the diagnosis itself. So the pain of patient that has kidney stone is more related to the obstruction that the stone gives to the patient. So... It's unlikely, and it's possible, but not really frequent that the patient has only kidney stones that are not obstructing and have that back pain that the stones are related to that. It's really difficult for us to uh, prove that that's the source of the pain. A completely different scenario, if the patient is passing a stone and the stone is not in the kidney anymore, but in the ureter with upstream hydronephrosis obstruction, then clearly there is a uh, good reason for a patient has that back pain or flank pain. All right, we're going to break in here for a second just to highlight this point. And that point is, it's not the stone itself that causes the pain. It's the backup of fluid behind the stone that's causing the pain. So a stone that's just hanging out in the kidney itself, urine's able to flow around that and everything should be fine for the patient. But once it gets into the ureter and it's causing a backup of urine and pressure going back up towards the kidney, that's where the real pain and discomfort from the stone comes. All right, back to Dr. Molina. But I think the type of pain is really important because this type of uh, pain uh, related to the passing stone is uh, typically like a cramp and can be really intense, up to 10, 1 out of 10, 10. And it's not related to activities. Patient can be sleeping, patient can be moving, patient can be doing anything. 
And if you talk to the patient, the patient, oh, I have that history of back pain and I have history of stones. And, and then when I move, I feel that the stone is moving too. This for me is more musculoskeletal because there is nothing related to movements of the body and that pain related to the stone. There are other uh, symptoms uh, that comes together also with the, when the patient is passing stone. Hematuria is one of the top ones. So it's really rare that a patient has flank pain and passing stone, and uh, and patient and you check your, your you know the urine and there is no blood cells there. It's really rare. So just to clarify, in the emergency department, if a patient has a kidney stone, about eighty five percent of the time they will also have hematuria. But if you rely on your urinalysis and hematuria to diagnose a kidney stone, you can miss up to fifteen percent of patients who actually have stones. And also uh, depends the region where the stone is stuck. If it's really stuck by the bladder, then the patient can have some urinary symptoms, such as frequency, that burning sensation, that sensation that when completely emptying the bladder after voiding. So those are you know good things that you can get from the patient before you go to the CT scan, which you will probably will go because the CT scan is give us all the information that we need for further management of the stone. So whether or not you're overwhelmed, I guess that is for you to determine. But I think a lot of emergency physicians, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, have chosen to go to CTKUB to evaluate for stone. This current protocol for stone disease, which is like a low-dose CT scan, and if you talk to radiology, they can give you better information about that. The amount of radiation is really not that much. Mm-hmm. It's really, a, if I'm not wrong, it's between three or five times more a plain film KOB because it's, there is boom, 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 you know, really low, uh, how do you say that? Like like Sieverts? Yeah, and then, uh, you know, if you look at it, it's kind of like a cloudy uh, CT scan, so they don't see a lot, the organs really nicely, but you can see the stone, which is what we are looking at. So I don't know if every hospital has that protocol. We found this last statement pretty fascinating. Hard to believe, in fact. So we looked it up, and Massachusetts General Hospital right now is using an ultra-low radiation dose for renal CT scans. The dose of radiation from these scans can be as low as 1.1 millisieverts. In comparison, the dose from an X-ray of a KUB in two views is 1.2 millisieverts. And this just confirms what Dr. Molina is saying, that as our imaging gets more advanced, we're able to tailor our scans to really lower the amount of radiation that our patients are getting. Just to push back against that a little bit, we know that the rate of chest CT scans increased six times over in the six years between 2001 and 2007. So with the prevalence of CT scanners and the propensity towards ordering CTs, we still have to be cognizant of the fact that the patient is getting radiation. While that seems like a little bit of radiation, some of these people are going to come in 10, 15, 20 times in their life for their kidney stones. So that radiation is still going to build up with them. Because of this, we're going to talk to Dr. Kendall, who we spoke to last time about using ultrasound as a method to evaluate our patients who are concerned about having kidney stones. When we're looking for kidney stones, what are the main things that we're looking in terms of the, the kidney itself, maybe the ureters, if we can see them, if we can see stones themselves? How do you do that evaluation? Kind of how we describe it is important. We're evaluating somebody who has flank pain, but we're looking for hydronephrosis. 
the diagnostic endpoint of the exam is not to see stones. And we may see stones. We, in fact, we may see stones that are interrenal, but rarely are those the ones that are actually causing the problem. What we're looking for is, is hydronephrosis that illustrates or at least lets us know that they have a stone that's down in the ureter. The ureters themselves are very difficult to see. You can see the, the proximal part of it, but, but once it gets down, oh, maybe four or five centimeters, it courses medially on the psoas muscle. And so you end up having to scan essentially through the psoas in order to see it. And there's so much bowel on either side of the psoas that it becomes very, very challenging to follow the ureter at all or to see any stones. Now, you can go down further and you can pick it up again as it comes into the bladder. And so there are, there are a couple of places that you'll, you'll, you'll concentrate your exams. One is right at the kidney looking for hydro, and then you can come down to the bladder itself. You may see a dilated ureter. You can even see a stone in the distal ureter. But the other thing that people will look for is um, ureteral jets which is actually seeing the urine come into the bladder itself right near the um, the ostrigone. And if you put color or power Doppler on the area where the ureteral jets come in, you'll actually see it almost looks like a geyser. And so one of the ways that that can be used is if you, you see the geyser on one side, the ureteral jets on one side, but you don't see it on the other, then that's further evidence that that ureter is actually obstructed by a stone, even though you're not seeing the stone itself. Our next step really is once we get a picture of the kidney and we're, we're talking about hydronephrosis, I always come up with the question of what's the significant amount of hydronephrosis? Are we talking about a little bit that makes a difference? Or are we talking about the whole kidney architecture is disrupted? When do we make decisions off ultrasound about varying levels of hydronephrosis? Thankfully, we've got Dr. John Kendall to help us out with this answer again this time. So generally, we, we think of it as uh, mild, medium, and large, which is extremely arbitrary. And in fact, it probably isn't that important that I look at an isolated kidney and grade the amount of hydronephrosis. They do that on CAT scan, and that's fine. But for our clinical decision-making, a lot of times we just want to know, is there hydro or is there not? And so the way we can distinguish that is we usually are going to have a kidney on the other side that's going to be normal. And that becomes our comparison. And I usually will start out on the unaffected side first and see what that architecture looks like and then compare it to the other other side, the one that's affected or the one at least I think is affected. The obstruction, even if it's a complete obstruction, hasn't had enough time in order for the hydronephrosis to develop. And usually that time frame is somewhere around six to eight hours or so. So if they've had pain for six or eight hours and then we do the study and we don't see any evidence of hydro, then you can pretty much exclude that they've got any significant obstruction. So the lesson that we're learning right now is that pain usually comes from obstruction. And as long as we're six to eight hours after the onset of pain, we should see hydronephrosis in the kidney if a kidney stone is causing that pain. So if somebody is in a significant amount of pain and we're not seeing that hydronephrosis, I think we can really think that it's probably not an obstructing stone that's causing that pain. And I think all of this brings up one really big question, and that is, is it safe to rely on ultrasound as your main imaging modality when you're evaluating somebody for kidney stones? So we took a look at some literature to see if we could find an answer to that question. So actually, there's a great article in New England Journal of Medicine uh, in 2014 by Rebecca Smith-Binman and her colleagues out of UC San Francisco, where they compared 
patients with ureterolithiasis undergoing either ultrasound or CT to establish the diagnosis of stones in the ureter. And what I thought was great about this paper was a real question is, if we use these different imaging modalities, if we choose to use ultrasound, are we putting our patients at risk and are they going to have worse outcomes from that? And really what this group found in 2,700 patients, there really was no discernible difference in the complications, serious uh, adverse events, pain scores, revisits to the ER, or even hospitalizations. So, you know, sometimes I, I think we have people that come in and say, oh, you can ultrasound that. Like, oh, I, I, I have a stub toe. Oh, you can ultrasound that. I think this is one of those times we're getting data that we actually really can ultrasound this in a really useful clinical way. Yeah. And you're doing good by your patients. You're getting people through the department faster. And it looks like in capable hands, you're not doing anybody any harm. So oftentimes there's different approaches as far as which labs are important from an emergency department standpoint or maybe from urology. And since we've got Dr. Molina available to us, we put that question to him. One thing that we have to rule out is infection and stone obstruction because that is really a life-threatening issue. So patient can really go septic in hours. So urine analysis that we can have really fast, send a culture since you're getting the urine sample, send a culture for checking later if patient got septic, and then uh, CBC also to check uh, what blood count and obviously the image study. So on urine, uh, don't look too much on the number of uh, red cells and, and uh, white cells and look at rates because Patient just passing stone with a little bleeding can, you know, you look more for nitrates, which is the indirect factor for infection. And on the CBC, obviously, if patient has, you know, leukocytosis, then that is an indirect sign that patient has probably has uh, infection on top of the obstruction because of the stone. And obviously, the physical exam, if patient is febrile, tachycardic, you know, with the signs of SEERS, then it's pretty clear that uh, something's going on. It's not really only passing stone. So obviously urine is incredibly important in this because we have to find out if there's an infection. If it is a woman and I'm concerned about a kidney stone, I have stopped messing around with the clean catch urine. I have found that about 80 to 90 to 100% of the time, there is enough contamination of that urine to make it questionable whether there's an infection. Don't you want to just say 100% of the time? I want to say... 114% of the time. And so that straight cath, which nobody really wants to do, it's tough to ask your nurses to do it. It's tough to ask your patients to do it. But most of the time we end up having to do it otherwise. And it's about an hour of time that we need to waste if we get a dirty urine to start with. So I've just gone straight to getting the straight cath now. All right, Overbeck, do you need a creatinine and somebody with a kidney stone? I don't, but the intern I consult to take care of the patient with the infected kidney stone always asks me for it. So if somebody has a bumped creatinine from a kidney stone, I mean, why why aren't you worried about that? Because they don't simultaneously get two kidney stones with high-grade obstruction of both kidneys at the same time. This, my friends, in Radioland is key. Your other kidney can take over the function of the kidney that's obstructed. So unless you have obstruction on both sides, you're not going to see a bump in your creatinine. So I'd say that people that have a kidney stone usually have a really good reason for having their BUN and creatinine both elevated. And it's not because they're obstructed on both sides. It's mainly because they've been thrown up for 24 hours. They tried to stay home, tried to do the right thing, but haven't been able to keep a lick down since they started hurting. 
So we come back and we'll talk to Dr. Molina about the importance of creatinine. If the patient is passing stone and has a normal less, you know, contralateral kidney, creatinine level is not going to change. So I wouldn't focus on the creatinine, you know, to, uh, unless it's bilateral, you know, stones, patient anuria, or single kidney, or the contralateral kidney is already trophic. We are, you know, then, then obviously creatinine will tell us about the obstruction. And often the emergency department, we don't know any of those yeah. background yeah. questions. Yeah. And then a creatinine might help you just yeah. be a little more reassuring that everything else is normal. Yeah. And because creatinine can give, you know, other, you know, indirect uh, signs of something, you know, is going on even worse, you know. Patient with one stone, contralateral kidney normal, then probably creatinine and not vomiting, not dehydrated, and probably creatinine wouldn't change a lot. And patient can still have a stone passing, you know, so. So have you ever been asked to send a creatinine on a patient? Occasionally I will be, and, uh, you know, I usually oblige, although it's a kind of a nod and a wink that we we all know that it's not anything important to the disposition or management of the patient. And and I think that's reasonable. I mean, I, we do a lot of things for our consultants to um, make sure we have good relationships across the spectrum of medicine. We often don't know a lot about our patients in the emergency department. You could make the argument that you're going to dose various antibiotics based on creatinine, you want to make sure that they don't have an AKI from dehydration. So I think it's reasonable, but when we're talking about specifically kidney stones or infected kidney stones, very little help when I look at that creatinine. All right. So we've talked about imaging. We've talked about the labs that we're going to get. I think the next question is what kind of treatment works? There's been papers out there that have looked at whether flooding people with fluids works. I've seen some pretty big flaws in those. I still give people fluids, even though the papers might say not to. But the, the mainstay of therapy tends to be tamsulosin. Yeah, regarding the medical explosive therapy, if you look at the American Urological Association guidelines or the European Association guidelines, Delphalbocker is still considered the, the best medication for medical explosive therapy. But there is a recent study about three, four months ago, and I, if I'm not wrong, by the, uh, from the UK, a really good study saying that there is no difference. So, but it's still, it's, it's still on the guidelines. So it depends on the, especially the size of the stone. If a stone is uh, around 5 millimeters, there's a 50% chance of passing. If 6 millimeters, is 40%. If 7 millimeters, is 30%. And the other way around is... Like it's five millimeters, fifty is forty, sixty, and so forth. So, so you have an idea, you know, if it's possible to pass or not. If patient has, a, has no infection and then patient is doing fine with the pain control, etc., the medical support therapy is uh, it's six weeks. If it isn't passing six weeks, then we have to do something. So, I think what I've found from alpha blockers treating kidney stones is this: is when I was a med student. We were supposed to give them. And then a little later when I was a med student, they said, don't give them. And then when I was an intern, they said, give them. And then later in residencies, they said, don't give them. And now I think there's more data and a recent meta-analysis and a recent paper that are pushing towards actually giving it and that being an effective treatment. Furek from Australia recently published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2016, the findings that Ureteral stones between 5 and 10 millimeters may benefit from tamsulosin or what they call medical expulsive therapy. 
this kind of flies in the face of a larger amount of data from the urology literature that suggests medical expulsive therapy with tamsulosin or even nifedipine does not really move things along. So I think what's interesting from this paper is they showed that there was no overall benefit, but when they took it into two parts and said stones five to 10 millimeters, that they got about 20% more expulsion from the tamsulosin. And this is CT proven where they've rescanned people at 28 days. But it also means that the people with stones between zero and five millimeters actually did worse with tamsulosin therapy. So I think this gives us a chance to actually tailor our therapy a little bit to the size of the stones that people have. So I'm not convinced with the data that's out there, but I will concede that for a large stone, I mean, I've had Marines that have told me they'd rather go through basic training all over again rather than have a stone. I've had moms who said I'd rather have a baby than have a stone. So I can understand that it's a painful situation. For those larger stones, I'd err on the side of throwing the kitchen sink at them and giving them the tamsulosin, but it's just not going to be a panacea. We just want to make clear that the study that we're talking about out of Australia that was out of Annals of Emergency Medicine came out after the conversation we had with Dr. Molina. So like I said, this environment is always shifting whether this is an appropriate treatment or not. So our patient came in, he had a history of kidney stones. And so I think that points us to maybe a diagnosis of kidney stones office history. When we're thinking about urinary symptoms in an elderly man that comes in, especially with an abdominal pain, one of the things we have to think about is, is he obstructed because his prostate's too large for one reason or another, and he has urinary retention. And it's usually pretty easy to kind of figure out if you have an ultrasound machine or in the old days, we throw a catheter in and get a liter of fluid back past the prostate. But, you know, we had Dr. Molina available. We want to ask him a little bit about obstruction and get a little more nuanced approach. When you encounter a elderly male who has flank pain, maybe back pain that goes and radiates into their abdomen, what are the urologic conditions that are in your differential diagnosis that you think we should be working up in the emergency department? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, especially in the elderly population, and uh, especially if it's a male patient, is uh, urinary retention or low urinary tract symptoms related to bladder outlet obstruction. can be due to a BPH most frequently, but also any dysfunction of the bladder. That would be one of my top differentials uh, to begin with. Obviously, uh, the past history of kidney stones is important because kidney stones can give that uh, flank pain, especially even in elderly population, although I always tend to think about kidney stones in a younger population than uh, an elderly population. So so I think that's a couple of things we have to really rule out is the patient is in urinary retention or not. And then if there is any partial obstruction in any part of the genital urinary system, starting from the kidney all the way down to the urethra. If we are looking to evaluate somebody for urinary retention, what are the tests that we can do to complete that evaluation? So first, uh, the history also is, as for everything, is very important. So it's very infrequent that the patient start the clinical scenario with urinary retention. So he's always start with difficulties to urinate, low stream hesitation, stream to urinate, nocturia, frequency during the day, sensation of incomplete empty after voiding, stuff like that. And then can progress to uh, the urinary tension. The patient cannot uh, void at all. So first in the, in the history, you have to talk to the patient, see how he was doing for the last two, three years in terms of 
his urinary, you know, his voiding symptoms. Then on the physical exam, it's pretty obvious if patient has, you know, urinary retention, like a mass by the pelvic bone, by the pubis. And obviously, uh, we can ask him to urinate and then uh, do a quick scan of the bladder and then find out uh, the residual. So that's pretty obvious the, if he has or not urinary retention. Then the cause then is another, another thing. One of the things that I find with obstruction too is that we really have to look after the potassium because these are people that really aren't filtering through their kidneys. And so these are people that will come in, their creatinine will be high, their K will be high, but we have a pretty quick way to fix that. And that's just by throwing a Foley catheter. And let's not forget the myth of post-obstructive diuresis. You don't need to clamp the Foley catheter after a liter of fluid comes out or anything like that. The kidneys are going to regulate as they normally would. So we can let the urine flow, as it were, once you've relieved the obstruction. I did not know that. I'm still clamping. Don't clamp. Don't don't clamp. Don't clamp. Don't clamp. So we're getting down to the end of our patient's initial time in the emergency department. He's been evaluated for AAA. That's negative. And then we've spent quite a bit of time diving into how we're going to look for a stone possibly on his imaging. We'll go over to Dr. Overbeck to kind of explain the other things and other tests that have come back. The other thing to keep in mind is at this point in his care, we're getting close to one team going off and another team coming on, and there's going to be a handoff that's coming up soon. And at that point, the other data we had was an EKG that showed sinus tachycardia without ischemia. BUN was a little elevated with a normal creatinine. What we had from the previous team was an elevated white count of 16.9. And we were really focusing on the imaging study of the abdomen to try and rule out renal colic as a cause of his pain. And aside from that, the patient had not given a urine yet, so we were going to chase down a urinalysis. And with that, we're going to wrap up the initial part of this investigation into our patient's back pain. On our next episode, we're going to look at a couple things. One of those is we're going to talk to a radiologist and really dig into her brain about what she looks for when she's evaluating a patient with back pain. We're going to cover the importance of transition of care, something we go through every time we go to work. We'll focus on non-medical aspects of care like teamwork and transitions of care, things that we participate in every day we set foot in the department. And that wraps up episode one of Undifferentiated. 